Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get underway here in a full room, which is great. My name is Kevin Dunn. Uh, I was until very recently the Public Outreach and Events Coordinator here at the Institute of World Politics. I do see some familiar faces here, so I'm sending my greetings and likewise to those new faces, of course. We're always very happy to see our, uh, our event circuit growing. Growing by uh, geometric rates, it seems, judging by the people around this table. Um, we are here gathered today to uh, listen to remarks presented by Ms. Bellman on her lecture entitled The Defense of the Fatherland, Russian World War II Narratives as Tools of the Kremlin. Uh, I take it, um, Rachel, that this will be on the record in view of our, our camera here. Is that yes. something you're okay? So it will be yes. on the record. No secrets. No secret, so we can be uh, collegial. The only thing we'd, we'd ask is if and when you, you ask questions, you just state your name and your affiliation so that we can uh, know who we all are around this great big table of ours. We uh, are the Institute of World Politics. Uh, for about a third of you who look new here, we are a graduate school of national security and international affairs, focusing on the full spectrum of the practice of statecraft, and as well as it's constrained by uh, ethical principles. So if you'd like to know a little bit more about our mission, the people here uh, who would have greater knowledge about that than, than I, uh, just feel free to reach reach out to me and I can put you in contact with some people who would know that information. And um, this lecture, I should also preface, is part of the Intermarian series sponsored by the Center for Intermarian Studies at IWP. and. Um, one, one degree above, that's that's uh, the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies as well. So we have those people to thank for sponsoring today's event. And of course, now we uh, have the great privilege of introducing a little bit about our speaker, and then we can get right into it. So uh, Rachel is a student in the Institute of World Politics, and she's pursuing an MA, a Master's in Statecraft and International Affairs. She graduated from Messiah College uh, with an English and minor in politics. She taught English at a summer camp in uh, Kostroma Oblast in Russia, and later was a resident junior fellow at the Center for the National Interest. She recently returned from a summer program of intensive Russian language study in Vladimir, Russia, and her particular interests are Russian-Soviet history, U.S.-Russian relations, Russian politics, and culture. And so, of course, we uh, will certainly be well advised to pay heed to her today. Without further ado, thank you so much for coming out, as always. And let's give her a warm, warm round of applause. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you everyone for coming. It's nice to see so many people here, I think. Um, thanks again to IWP for hosting, as well as uh, Dr. Kodakevich for encouraging me to do a presentation on this, uh, which actually a uh, paper that I wrote for his class last semester. So. We'll start out. Uh, World War II was known in Russia and many of the former Soviet republics as the Great Patriotic War. This is perhaps the most cataclysmic event in the history of the Soviet Union, aside from its creation and dissolution. Estimates of Soviet soldiers killed in the war range from about 7 million to 14 million. Um, Anvar Smilovich, Smilov, after a com comprehensive study of more recent available sources, estimates the total to be 13,850,000. And this number does not include Soviet civilian casualties, which were comparable or even greater in scale, um, though certainty on this topic is nearly impossible. 
regardless of the exact losses, the impact on Soviet society was both physically and psychologically devastating. The Great Patriotic War has thus become emblematic of the power of collective memory and its political distortion to shape perceptions of current events in the post-Soviet sphere. It's therefore ripe for exploitation by uh, the Kremlin. Uh, the treatment of the Great Patriotic War in Russia uh, particularly closely resembles Eric Hobsbawm's theory of invented tradition, which Miguel Vasquez Mignon invokes to describe, quote, the construction of an ad hoc historical discourse that serves the interests of, of the present. Invented tradition serves to legitimize a government and its policies, frequently taking on a ritualistic character in order to, and I have a quote from him there, construct a certain order amid the chaos of daily life establishing certain aspects of coexistence and forcing the periodic repetition of a re recreated fictitious past to ultimately compose a certain social imaginary. Although these invented traditions may not have a large impact on citizens' private lives, we cannot say the same of the public sphere in which they play, or pretend to play, an important role in social cohesion. Obviously, the Second World War was not a fictitious event, nor was the immense sacrifice and eventual victory of the Soviet Union and its allies. But the glorification of the Soviet Union's role in the war must necessarily involve either a reconciliation with the communist past and the atrocities committed, or a refusal to acknowledge that the conflict was not a simplistic battle between good and evil. In the Putin era, the latter circumstances reigned, revealing itself through a deliberate shaping of history, a rehabilitation of the Soviet Union, including Stalin, and the rituals of invented tradition, namely Victory Day celebrations, and the associated rhetoric which harkens back to the days of the war and colors Russian discourse even in seemingly unrelated contexts. Soviet history, and indeed reality, has been manipulated by the state and used to fulfill ideological needs long before the Putin era. Stalin and his commissar of foreign affairs, Vyacheslav Molotov, made official pronouncements on the origins of the war and the Soviet Union's participation in it which were distilled into falsifiers of history, a pamphlet which suggested that the Soviet Union was at all times a peace-loving state, but was forced to confront and destroy the fascist threat by Hitler and his evil ideology. <coughs> Teddy J. Aldrich argues that the National Patriotic School of Russian Historiography, which has blossomed under Putin, has taken a similar approach, though of course without assuming the infallibility of the Communist Party. Rather, these historians, quote, seek to establish a heroic and usable past out of which a resurgent, proud, nationalist Russia might be reborn. Examples of such interpretations in the case of the beginning of the war would be acknowledging the secret protocols of the Nazi-Soviet pact existed, but spinning them as rightfully restoring Russian territory lost during the First World War, or as an attempt at the liberation of Poland, both of which are predicated on the assumption that Stalin's diplomatic skill and strong leadership was pivotal and beneficial to the country. Russian officials at the highest levels have openly espoused a version of history which glorifies the Russian role and minimizes negative elements. On June 22, 2016, on the anniversary of the start of the Great Patriotic War, in an address to delegates to the Russian National Historical Assembly, Vladimir Putin emphasized the importance of the victory over the Nazis for the survival of the Russian people. This is a quotation from him. You've just spoken about the need to know what the Nazis perpetrated in our land. My German friend read different historical documents about what Hitler had planned to do with the Russian people had he won, where the Russian people would have ended up, 
far away in Siberia, essentially doomed to extinction. Everyone should know this, including those who are trying to reinterpret what happened and draw conclusions, which no one has the right to do today, or to denounce somebody. It is necessary to look at what would have happened to us if we had been defeated. It's not difficult to understand the subtext here. Essentially, because the threat to the Soviet Union was existential one, it is not acceptable to pry too deeply into the means. What matters is the end, which would be the victory. Similarly, uh, in an interview with Russia Today in preparation for the 70th anniversary of Victory Day, Chief of Staff of the Presidential Executive Office, Sergei Ivanov, warned against changing history, placing particular blame on the West. And this is a quotation from him. I'm also concerned that politicians in some countries, particularly in Western Europe, in the United States, purposely try to rewrite history, to twist history, to put, for example, communism and Nazism on one level. Western countries want to use this not very moral method to isolate Russia. I think it's propaganda. We are often accused of propaganda, I know, by the Western media. But in this case, it's obviously Western propaganda. Unfortunately, the Nazis and Soviets had much more in common than Ivanov suggests, a toxic ideology combined with a penchant for brutality toward their own people. It becomes clear that rewriting history, in this case, simply means calling attention to events which portray the historic Russia as fallible, to put it mildly. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev pursued the same theme a few years prior, excluding the Great Patriotic War from any scrutiny. History, the October Revolution, he says, for instance, can be assessed in various ways. But the Great Patriotic War was the nation's defense from the aggressor. No discussions must arise over obvious facts, at least in textbooks. Let scholars write whatever they like. But the authors of textbooks and the general accessible media must stick to the generally accepted point of view on such events. It comes as no surprise, then, that the importance of a strong state is continually emphasized in Russian history textbooks. According to David Satter, this came about in the mid-2000s. He notes that Igor Zelutsky's textbook, A History of the Homeland in the 20th Century, was a balanced view of the Soviet era and acknowledged its offenses including the occupation of the Baltics, the shooting of citizens within the Soviet Union for cowardice, and the 1939 division of Eastern Europe between Hitler and Stalin. But this popular textbook fell out of favor with the Ministry of Education. A few years later, teachers were using a widely published manual by Alexander Filipov, a Russian political operative, which portrayed the Soviet past in a more positive light. It gave rise to state-supported history textbooks, which, according to Satter, justified the regime's worst crimes, including collectivization and the Great Terror, and included numerous dubious historical claims about the nature of Soviet Union's conduct in World War II. In this way, suggests Mikhail Vasquez Mignon, the Russian government emphasizes the importance of the victory over less savory elements of history. To do so, as we've seen, requires either a falsification of the historical record or an attempt to justify crimes, in effect a rehabilitation of the Soviet past. Part of this rehabilitation comes in the form of the rituals of invented tradition which Linyan references, namely the yearly patriotic celebrations of Victory Day and the lingering veneration of Stalin as the leader of this victory. Satter tells the story of Oral Russia, whose city council in March 2005 voted to rehabilitate Stalin by restoring his name to landmarks and erecting a bust of him in the city center, 
despite the fact that tens of thousands of people in the city were arrested and the sizable portion shot during the Stalin era. There was a mixture of outrage and support for the motion, but the editor of the local newspaper in the city neatly summarized the situation for Satter, saying, all that is left of the former superpower is the victory in the Second World War. In the mass consciousness, the symbol of that victory is Stalin. Until 1993, the immunity to Stalin was very strong, but now I think we will resurrect Stalin. There's a strong demand for a firm hand. This comes from the chaos and disorder in the country. The plan for the Stalin Renaissance was never fulfilled in oral. Other considerations took precedence. Yet this is just one example of the elevation of the victory in the Second World War and Stalin's leading role in it to an almost untouchable status. To this day, Stalin's grave remains in a position of honor outside the walls of the Kremlin, strewn with bouquets of flowers. And this is a recent um, poll from the Lavada Center um, in which 1,600 Russians were surveyed and asked to give the names of the 10 most outstanding figures of all time. And this year, in 2017, this was only about a month or two ago that the survey actually took place, 38% mentioned Stalin. And you can see that uh, in first there, uh, you can see the progression of how many people mentioned Stalin over the years. The second place person is uh, Putin, third is Pushkin, fourth is Lenin, and fifth is uh, Peter the First or Peter the Great. So it's just it's in also interesting to note that um, there all the uh, top ten this this year were all Russians, even though um, people could choose from anyone in the, in the world. The Great Patriotic War and the celebrations and pronouncements associated with its various anniversaries serve as an opportunity for the government to put on a fantastic show of pomp and patriotism. On May 9, 2015, the 70th anniversary of Victory Day, a particularly lavish military parade was staged in Red Square. Soviet symbols, regalia, and military might, including bombers and tanks, both new and historic, and 15,000 troops were on full display. Though Victory Day celebrations in Moscow are always grand spectacles, the 70th anniversary marked a new level of expense and effort. The budget was 28.5 billion rubles, with 12.5 billion going toward veterans' housing and 12.3 billion for veterans' social services, according to Sergei Ivanov, chairman of the organizing committee. He said, despite not a very bright economic situation in Russia, we deliberately decided not to make any cuts for the preparations. Of course, it's not possible to track how the money was spent. Parades and celebrations in 150 cities, including outside of Russia in former Soviet republics, were planned, as well as five naval parades and five air shows. Russia is so serious about the Great Patriotic War that it even has a military theme park. I use the term theme park loosely because it's not like a place that has roller coasters or anything, but you'll see what I mean. Um, a project of the Russian Ministry of Defense, Patriot Park in Kubinka, Moscow, was officially opened to the public in 2016 and features vast swaths of military vehicles and hardware, historical exhibits, and interactive experiences. A World War II-era partisan village has been recreated for visitors, complete with the opportunity to enjoy some delicious army porridge or bread. That's from the website. The park also includes a dedicated space, which is still in progress, for the Ministry of Defense-sponsored youth organization, UNARMIA, which is described as a military patriotic movement in which members participate in military tactical games, 
Great Patriotic War Reenactments, and Community Service. Recently, in preparation for the 2017 Victory Day commemoration, a 1,500-person Unarmia reactment of the Battle of Berlin was performed, complete with a replica of the Reichstag over which the Soviet flag was raised. And the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, was present for this event as well. Patriot Park also includes its own chapel, which recalls the active involvement of the Russian Orthodox Church in the Great Patriotic War and the intimate relationship between church and state in Putin's Russia. Roger Reese notes that the Russian Orthodox Church was involved in the war effort for longer than originally believed. That is, until Stalin rehabilitated the church for patriotic purposes in September 1943. Shortly after the German invasion in June 1941, Metropolitan Sergei distributed a pastoral letter which drew the support of the church behind the war effort. This is an excerpt from that letter. This is not the first time that the Russian people have endured suffering. And on this occasion, with God's help, they will grind the hostile forces of fascism into dust. Our native land is being defended by the force of arms, by the common heroism of its people, and by a general willingness to serve our country in this difficult trial. The Church of Christ confers its blessing on all Orthodox believers in their defense of the holy borders of our motherland. The Church also collected donations and used some of its own remaining funds to finance two aircraft squadrons and an entire column of 40 tanks. These new details about the early involvement of the Russian Orthodox Church have only recently been revealed and served to promote the Church's claim that it was motivated by patriotism, a point that it uses to claim legitimacy in contemporary Russia. The church at Patriot Park, built in honor of St. George, was consecrated by Metropolitan Juvenal on May 23, 2016. The website of Patriot Park states that the chapel, quote, was built for the glory of the Russian army and in memory of the fallen in defense of the fatherland, end quote, and services are held there on a regular basis. The patriotic fervor of victory lives on in Russia not only in the physical trappings of parades and commemorations, but also in the rhetoric surrounding the war. To compare Putin and Stalin as people or leaders ventures into questionable territory, and I'm not going to go there, but it's significant to note that Putin's Victory Day speeches are strikingly similar to Stalin's wartime encouragements to the Soviet people. The differences between them, however, are evidence of the use of historical rhetoric to further contemporary ends. In an examination of Putin's Victory Day speech of 2015 and 2016, and Stalin's wartime speeches on occasions such as the anniversary of the October Revolution or the anniversary of the founding of the Red Army, both men emphasized the role of the Soviet Union or Russia, respectively, as the defender of civilization itself and as a force for freedom and liberation. Both Stalin and Putin framed the conversation about the war in terms of civilization of which the Soviet Union and Russia are the defenders, and barbarity. In his wartime speeches, Stalin repeatedly mentions that the German army is one of, quote, medieval obscurantism, end quote, and that the fascists are enemies of European culture. The goal of the Allied forces is thus to save mankind from reversion to savagery and medieval brutality. Putin continues this narrative, stating that, quote, it was our soldiers who paid back the Nazis and the Allies in full for the millions of victims, for all the barbarities and atrocities on our land. Today, civilization is again facing cruelty and violence. Terrorism has become a global threat." End quote. Quite obviously, as it does not fit the narrative, 
Putin does not apologize for or even mention the atrocities which the Soviet Union committed against its own people during the war. But the allusion to terrorism as the new existential threat to civilization is an effort to galvanize the Russian population in support of the state against this new barbarism, in effect preparing for another battle for the future of the entire humanity, as Putin characterizes the Great Patriotic War. Relatedly, both Putin and Stalin focus on the role of the Soviet Union as a liberating force, a constant theme which is disputed by those living in territories reoccupied by the Soviets, who changed hands from one totalitarian system to another. Quote, it was the Soviet people who brought freedom to other peoples, end quote, Putin asserted in his 2016 Victory Day speech. A year before, his argument was the same, presented without necessary caveats, quote, our people liberated European nations from the Nazis, end quote. Stalin peddles this narrative incessantly in his wartime speeches as well. Quote, the Red Army man can proudly say that he is waging a just war, a war for liberation, Stalin declares. He goes further into the realm of absurdity when discussing the Soviet Union and its allies' mission to, quote, grant the liberated peoples of Europe the full right and freedom to decide for themselves the question of their own form of government, end quote. The cases of Poland and Czechoslovakia, for example, show the emptiness of this promise, even though Stalin counts the Soviet Union among the freedom-loving nations. That there's no real shift from the Soviet line to Putin's rhetoric can only be attributed to willful deception in pursuit of political goals. More broadly, both Putin and Stalin make use of high-flown, nationalistic, patriotic, and occasionally bombastic language. A comparison of general statements about the victory is illustrative of the similarity in style. First, a representative segment of Putin's 2015 Victory Day speech, which you can see on the right. Our fathers and grandfathers lived through unbearable sufferings, hardships, and losses. They worked till exhaustion, at the limit of human capacity. They fought even unto death. They proved the example of honor and true patriotism. We pay tribute to all those who fought to the bitter for every street, every house, and every frontier of our motherland. Long live the victorious people. Note that Putin's rhetorical style does not, does not differ substantially from Stalin's, which you can see on the left. The great sacrifices that we have made in the name of liberty and independence of our motherland, the innumerable exertions and sufferings that our people had to bear in the course of the war, the strenuous work in the rear and the front that they have brought to the fatherland have not been in vain. They have been crowned by complete victory over the enemy. Eternal glory to the heroes who fell in battle against the enemy and gave their lives for the freedom and happiness of our motherland. Other than the differences relating to verb tense and time, obviously, side by side, the language of these two passages is nearly indistinguishable. Again, this is not to suggest that Putin and Stalin are the same, but it's clear that Stalin's original wartime rhetoric has found its way into contemporary discourse, even at the very top. However, there's one very significant difference in the way Putin and Stalin address the contributions of the other allied forces to the war effort. Both are operating with political purposes in mind, naturally, which differ according to the needs of the time. Thus, Stalin places significantly more emphasis on the importance of the Allies, particularly early on in the war, and for good reason. Their military and monetary aid will turn out to be essential to sustaining the Soviet forces. Later in the war, he credits the United States and Great Britain for their considerable contribution to these Red Army's successes. 
Perhaps most interestingly, given Dmitry Medvedev's excoriation of biased interpretations, namely the fact that, quote, it was not we who defeated the enemy, and that the Americans did, and the, so the Second Front helped, end quote, Stalin himself lauds the opening of the Second Front as vital to achieving victory. Stalin says, the troops and navy of our allies accomplished a mass landing operation on the coast of France that has no parallel in history for scope and organization, and overcame the German fortifications with consummate skill. Thus, Germany found herself gripped in a vice between two fronts. There can be no doubt that without the opening of a second front in Europe, our troops would not have been able to break the resistance of the German forces and knock them out of the Soviet Union in such a short time. He goes on to commend the Red Army for its powerful offensive operations, which greatly aided their allies. But Stalin is actually rather fair in his portrayal of the contributions of other allied forces to Soviet efforts in the East. This theme of camaraderie and repeated insistence on the joint nature of the fight against Nazi Germany runs throughout Stalin's wartime speeches, when good uh, relations with the allies were a necessity and was treated more dismissively by Putin in his Victory Day speeches of late, when relations with the West are particularly tense. Uh, Putin's 2016 Victory Day speech contains no explicit or implicit references to any of the other Allied forces playing part in the victory. His speech on the 70th anniversary of the victory is more fleshed out, but his references to the Western Allies seem to be an excuse to malign their current bad behavior as he sees it. Putin begins with an ode to the assistance of the Allied nations and the anti-fascists of various countries, and a reference to the meeting on the Elbe River as an example of, quote, the trust and unity that became our common legacy, and an example of unification of peoples for the sake of peace and stability, values that became the foundation of the post-World War order, end quote. Yet immediately after this obliging recognition, Putin takes a sharp turn, saying that recently these, quote, basic principles of international cooperation have come to be increasingly ignored, end quote. He makes it clear that he is singling out the United States when he calls out attempts to establish a uni unipolar world and implicates the rest of the West with its strong-arm block thinking gaining momentum. He then offers a prescription for this problem, mainly, quote, a system of equal security for all states, which should rest on a regional and global non-block basis, end quote. Moralizing complete, Putin continues into the final half of the speech, with no further mention of the West. The Western contribution to the Allied victory has been pushed aside in Russia as relations have worsened. The symbolism of the Great Patriotic War has found expression in other anti-Western outlets as well. One notable example is the youth organization, NASHI. Founded in 2005 under the pretense of being an independent organization, though in reality the Kremlin's role in establishing and perpetuating the group was substantial, NASHI was a self-styled youth democratic anti-fascist movement. Though its ideological profile changed slightly according to political expediency, it's no accident that its first rally was held on Victory Day 2005, a few months after Ukraine's Orange Revolution. The group invoked the wartime notion of Russia under attack to support a strong identification of the state against nefarious Western influences. Julie Hemmett writes in 2012, quote, the enemy or other, now she portrays, is a complex amalgam of undesirable forces, 
Now she proclaims its aim is to end the unnatural union of oligarchs, anti-Semites, Nazis, and liberals. It invokes a Western-sponsored liberal fascist alliance that seeks to interfere with Russia's autonomy and strength. The Russian Great Patriotic War narrative has not just colored relations between itself and the West. It is spread outward to encompass the way it approaches former Soviet republics, in particular those with Russian and Russian-speaking minorities. Nowhere is this mentality reflected more virulently in the post-Soviet sphere than Russia's relationship with Ukraine. Sergei Ivanov, when asked about the possible danger of a growing neo-Nazi movement in Eastern Europe and some Western European nations, stated, Quote, in Baltic states, in Ukraine, now you can see openly Nazi marches. With torches, with Nazi symbols, they are open. And we are very much concerned that local governments do nothing to prevent it. End quote. Ivanov references here the narrative propaga propagated by Russian state media, namely television, which is where most Russians get their news, which associates the Euromaidan movement with radical neo-Nazi fringe groups. The latter exists, certainly, and are to be condemned, but the majority of Ukrainians in support of stronger ties with the West and freedom from the yoke of the Kremlin are not fascist. The Ukrainian crisis as a whole has stoked the fires of anti-EU and anti-American sentiment. Roman Horbuch suggests that the incendiary language with which Russian media characterizes the fighting between Russian-backed separatists and Western Ukrainians is one way of, quote, foregrounding the radical Ukrainian elements and foreign actors while backgrounding the indigenous agency, liberal and progressive forces. The locals are pacified, except the radical groups, and all protesters are then aggregated under the level of extremism." Of course, talk of fascism presents an opportunity to call to mind the Soviet, that is Russian, existential battle against Nazism. Horvick references, as a vivid example, a story on Russia's Channel One network in which the insurgents of the so-called National Guard are likened to Nazis who are bent on annihilation of men, women, and children in order to take their land and perhaps acquire some slaves. Thus, it suggested that Ukrainians in the Donbass should be fought with the same vigor as the Nazis were fought in the Great Patriotic War, for they are no less evil. Compounding this characterization was a widely publicized story that Ukrainian soldiers had crucified a child, which gained traction despite being completely fabricated. Another omnipresent symbol in Russian media and culture is St. George's Ribbon. Its characteristic pattern of orange and black stripes, it's considered a symbol of the victory over Nazism in the Great Patriotic War. And for a personal note, when I was in Russia, I saw these everywhere, on many cars, on sides of buildings. They're, they're really everywhere. Um, However, in, in the past 12 years, it's come to symbolize solidarity with the Russian government against supposed Western manipulations in Ukraine and elsewhere. Unsurprisingly, the reanimation of St. George's Ribbon began as a patriotic movement by Nashi, which distributed ribbons to the Russian public on Victory Day 2005, and the ribbon has since become a, a staple of patriotic displays. The ribbon itself is not particularly problematic, but it took on more sinister dimensions in the after the Russian election protests in 2011. Many of the anti-Putin, anti-corruption protesters there sported white ribbons, and this inspired pro-Kremlin groups to retaliate by wearing the St. George's ribbons and protesting the protesters as unpatriotic and disrespecting the memory of the veterans of the Great Patriotic War. 
naturally Putin himself showed up at a rally in 2011 wearing his own signature of his ribbon. The ribbon has also been used to identify support for the Russian government among Russian minorities and governments loyal to the Kremlin in the post-Soviet spheres. Naturally, Victory Day celebrations in countries which have maintained strong ties to Russia, such as Moldova, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, celebrate in a similar manner. The leaders of these countries generally attend the Victory Day Parade in Moscow. The 70th anniversary celebrations featured soldiers from Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. St. George's Ribbon features prominently in immortal regiment marches in the post-Soviet sphere, there's a picture of this year's in Washington, um, including in the Baltics and even in Russian expat communities around the globe, including in Canada, the United States, Israel, Spain, and even a small group in China. The marches are a relatively new phenomenon, and according to RT, uh, are, quote, an act of admiration and remembrance of all those who showed bravery during perhaps the most terrifying time in our recent history, end quote. However, it appears that the marches are exclusively focused on commemorating the Soviet military. Soviet and Russian flags are flown, signs are mainly in Russian, old patriotic songs are sung in Russian, children dress up in Soviet regalia, and St. George's ribbons are prominently displayed. In Moldova, for instance, which retains close ties to Russia, an immortal regiment march was held last year, which was sponsored by the Party of Communists of the Republic of Moldova and two other veteran patriotic groups. The Russian ambassador to Moldova was present, playing a leading role in the rally and reading a statement from President Putin to Moldovan veteran. As the largest republic of the former Soviet Union, and the face and origin of that multinational country, Russian ideology, and thus its representation of the Great Patriotic War, vary in various ways. However, the vastly different experiences of the war by Soviet republics and satellites have prevented Russian Great Patriotic War propaganda from penetrating all of the post-Soviet sphere. We have already discussed Ukraine. Uh, it is important to note that since the separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine, there has been a move away from Soviet imagery and Russian representations of the war on the part of the government. On the 70th anniversary of the victory, for instance, uh, poppy flowers have stood in as symbols for the victory itself. Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko's wife, Marina, attended a remembrance poppy ceremony as a step toward promoting a more unifying symbol for the defeat of the Nazis without Soviet apologism. In the case of those nations annexed by the Soviet Union, occupied by the Nazis, and then liberated by the Soviet Union, liberated in quotes, for instance, the Baltic countries, there are much more ambivalent feelings about commemorating the war, which are complicated by the presence of Russian minorities. About 15% of Lithuanians are Russian speakers, and about a third of Latvians and Estonians speak Russian, with slightly more in Latvia. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia has sought to create closer ties with these minorities, which is particularly concerning considering the justification for intervention in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. Estonia has a sizable population of Russian speakers in its capital, Tallinn, and the city of Narva, which is overwhelmingly Russian and has a significant number of Russian citizens. Tensions and violence between Estonians and Russians living in Estonia, as well as Russians shipped in from Russia, flared in 2007 when the Estonian government decided to move, remove a Soviet war memorial. The Russian narrative of the war remains a vital part of the identity of Russian Estonians and can be exploited by the Russian government to cultivate further loyalty in the Russian population in the former Soviet Union. 
As in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania also experienced some tensions with ethnic Russian minorities. Lithuania has a smaller population of Russian speakers than Estonia and Latvia, so it's perhaps less susceptible to Russian influence. The more challenging integration of Russian speakers into Lithuanian society has created an opportunity for possible Russian interference on behalf of the rights of the minority. Latvia is a particularly interesting case. 40% of Riga's inhabitants are ethnic Russian, and pro-Russian political parties have made better showings there than in other Baltic states. Because of the significant Russian population, the Great Patriotic War has become a point of tension. Latvian independence saw a return to pre-Soviet traditions, including national holidays. However, Russians living in Latvia were unfamiliar with these holidays and lacked the same framework for understanding them. Put simply, and this can be applied in many cases to Russian minorities who moved to different republics during the time of the Soviet Union, Quote, Russians and Latvians in Latvia are split less by ethnic culture, language, and specific characteristics than by ideas about the history of the 20th century, particularly in terms of events in 1939 and 1940, during World War II, and during the Soviet occupation. Latvians see this era as one in which great offenses were committed, while those who arrived in Latvia from other Soviet republics after the war consider it to be a period of Soviet triumphs and achievements. As the Russian Great Patriotic War narrative shows the signs of abating, and as most Russian speakers outside of Russia get their news from Russian language sources, it's important to recognize just how far-reaching the Russian message is and the success it has had with using historical memory for political purposes. The Great Patriotic War remains a powerful symbol in Russia, and for good reason. It significantly impacted the lives of the Soviet people and is a triumphant highlight in an otherwise bleak past. And to note the purpose of the study is not to discount the real feelings that Russians and uh, members of the former Soviet Union have about the Great Patriotic War because they're very strong and very real, but rather it's to point out um, the way the government is able to exploit these emotions for its own purposes. Um, most concerning these is a refusal to acknowledge the bitter and conflicted legacy of the Soviet Union's crimes against its own people and a refusal to condemn Soviet ideology as toxic to humanity. Emotionally charged rhetoric and potent symbolism have become prominent in Victory Day celebrations both in Russia and abroad. This presents challenges to governments abroad with Russian populations who imbibe Kremlin propaganda on the subject, and an obstacle to establishing historical facts and acknowledging the suffering of non-Russian Soviet people under the yoke of communism. All indicates suggest that Russia, the Russian government will continue to spread its view of the past as long as the state deems it necessary to galvanize the support of its people against foreign enemies, be they Ukrainian nationalists or the U.S. State Department. An issue as deeply bound up in the political culture of the region, even more than 70 years later, is unlikely to be publicly questioned by those on the inside who may be seeking to re-examine the war in light of the historical wreckage. And I... I'm going to take questions, apparently. If anyone has questions. Yes. I don't know if we have like a microphone or something. Oh, I can yell. Okay. Um, two questions. One, you talked about how you saw that Charles were spawned the most popular Russian leader, right? Uh, it was... Uh, the, 10, right? Yeah, the question was who is the most outstanding basically person in all of history. So, so I'm curious because 
was the fact that suddenly it's Georgia that affects the people actually know in Russia that suddenly it's Georgia and it's, it's not, not, but nowadays different country. Is that part of history is kind of forgotten or omitted and say, oh, he's was a great Soviet leader and was someone who what he's from and the fact that Georgia, the country right now, is in really good terms with Russia after the 1908 war, etc., etc. And my second question, really quickly, would be when it comes to the minorities, also, I've always been curious about the Tatars, how they were deported from, from when now it's Crimea, Ukraine, to by Stalin because of you know, supporting the Nazis, the Germans in World War II. From what you, from your research, has that part of history also been forgotten? Just, you know, the Russian government just doesn't want to bring it up anymore? Yes, for the, for the first point of Stalin being Georgian, um, I think he himself sort of assumed a Russian identity, and that's basically how he was portrayed, and I, I don't think that it's really a big concern of people that he's actually Georgian. I was reading that um, he actually made Georgian food uh, more popular in the, the Moscow area. Now it's actually quite fashionable. Um, as for the Tatars, um, they're an interesting case because as opposed to many of the people in Crimea, they consider themselves to be occupied. Um, they obviously never really had a good time of it. And um, it's interesting, they, they create kind of a force, a force that I don't think the Russian government wants to acknowledge or I'm obviously not an expert on the Tatars, but um, I imagine that their existence and the history, their history presents kind of a problem when trying to uh, sort of explain away some of the not so nice parts of the past. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I uh, just wondered about that. Is this unique? I mean, I don't see any difference in this than any other nation. We have three holidays. We have Memorial Day. We have July 4th. We have what's called now Veterans Day, which is Amish's Day. Uh, we celebrate in a patriotic fashion, same way. Uh, matter of fact, you talk to a lot of Americans, they don't even know that the Soviet Union was in World War II. They think that the United States won World War II by themselves. Well, so I don't see where this is any much different. I mean, every nation tries to involve its people in patriotic fervor, especially when there are dilemmas like that. I don't see where this is so pertinent any different. I'd like to make some corrections, though. I'm surprised that Stalin, uh, talking about the invasion, which was quite nice of him, but I believe Stalingrad was fought in the end of 1942, and the German army was virtually defeated. Then there was a big tank battle afterwards in early 1943, and the German army was almost doomed. And I believe at the end of 1943, maybe someone correct me, I believe Soviet troops were already in Poland. And the uh, invasion of well, the Allies was June 6, 1944. So I wouldn't say the war was virtually over, but the German army was pretty well defeated so the so Union really did win the war, in fact. But I never hear, uh, there are no monuments to Soviet people here. I never hear any Americans 
you say the Soviets don't give credit. I never heard any Americans give any credit to the Soviet. And in effect, the Soviets saved the Western world. They really saved the Western world. They really defeated the Germans. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of the sacrifices that they made. Basically, the point of what I'm saying is that the Soviet Union's victory has become sort of just a way to drum up patriotism in, some, in a way that is unique in the world because, well, maybe not like North Korea, but unique in the world because of such a unique history and the fact that they've come out of that and still there's still a kind of nostalgia for the period is something that's that's interesting and, and difficult to understand from from the western perspective i think um but well i think you said the right words difficult to understand from the western perspective but from their perspective they may well understand it. yes of course I is there any doubt that, that uh, you know, the, the Russians were responsible for shooting down the, the Dutch airplane that they had on the side? I don't know. I guess it would depend on who you asked. <laughs> well, as, as many but, no, but it would, no, that's, that's rather not so. I mean, there are people who, who, who but evaluate these things responsibly, and there are people who don't evaluate them responsibly. Yes, well, I'm not an expert on the subject, so I can't speak it's, to well, it. Well, it's, it's an event <laughs> that ought to be noted for some idea of the, the, of the way the Russian government works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're all so much more interesting presentation. By the way, President Kennedy, in, uh, in June 1962, acknowledged the Russian sacrifice at a graduation speech at the American University. My question relates to well before the Allies opened the second front on the coast of France, uh, they provided on a continuing basis. They sent convoys after convoys of cargo ships escorted by cruisers to the North Atlantic, facing the stormy Atlantic, and the German U boats. To supply the Russians, and boats went all the way to Murmansk, and providing heavy equipment, tanks and, and jeeps and, and ammunition and everything. That was in the early years the lifeline of the of the Russian you know, military. Uh, did Stalin ever acknowledge that contribution? Um, I'm sure he did, because uh, most of the speeches that I read were. I, I had a book of Stalin's like wartime speeches, which were just given on the anniversary of various important dates of the Soviet calendar. Um, he does spend a lot of time acknowledging, like a, a fair amount of time acknowledging the Allied, Allied contributions. That incident specifically, I can't speak to, but he does. Come across it. How, how did Stalin try to explain away the 1939 Nazi Nazi-Soviet pact, where between the Nazis they both invaded Poland and agreed to split it? So he was an ally with the Nazis as well before he was ever on the side of the West, and refused to believe that the Nazis would even invade Poland or would invade Russia. So how did how did he explain that? Really, the, I think Stalin's main um, interest was in 
asserting that, of course, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Um, I mean, that was pretty much his entire rationale for anything suspicious he did, as well as the fact that Soviet state media was in control of so much that it was it was easy to obfuscate and dodge topics um, I know from personal experience how the World War II was kept alive in the memories of generations, and I'm still to this point with people like my husband's motorcycle sidecar because it reminds me of the Nazis, and I'm not that old. Um, but I'm curious in your personal experience when you were in Russia, did you encounter how the memories kept alive now? Is it in schools? Is it like what your organization is mentioning in Russia? Or is it penetrating on other levels? That's question one. And number two, have you encountered any mention of learned links programs provided by the United States during World War II, or is this kind of like the um, unlock of history that is being passed out right now? Uh, as for the second question, yes. Um, I found almost no mention of Lindley's or anything uh, like that in any of Putin's recent speeches on um, the Great Patriotic War as a whole, especially in um, his Victory Day speeches, as well as uh, various statements like on the topic. I think that they were possibly more prevalent um, a little earlier on in the, the early Putin years, although I can't speak to exactly. Um, there was, a, of course, a time when, uh, in the early Putin years, when uh, our relationship softened a bit um, before it uh, turned around 2005. So uh, I imagine then it was a little uh, softer. But as for, the, as for the personal experience, yes, I, I noticed um, a significant, significant um, importance of the Great Patriotic War and its memories um, in Russia among even young children as well as uh, older people who actually had maybe parents who served um, in the war. I saw, as I mentioned, there, I had a bunch of like bumper stickers up there. Those are everywhere. Um, one very popular one is, uh, it says, which means thanks grandpa for the victory. Um, it's in the little rhyme. Those are very frequently I've seen. Um, I was there for Russia Day, um, and that's not like a super popular holiday, but they do have a day off. Um, so there's like some, not parades, but like festivities um, commemorating, well, that holiday commemorates the new Russian constitution, which is why it sort of hasn't caught on yet to be like a really exciting holiday. But um, even there, there were a lot of uh, children, like there was a children's performance group singing like old patriotic war songs, that kind of thing. I mean, it's taught in schools. And every child, even today, knows a lot about the history. But I was just thinking, it's, I have a slight problem in, in parsing your talk because, on the one hand, you could talk about various groups in Russia, since you mentioned that youth group or other groups. 
and then and then there's the uh, the figure of Putin, and of course it's all happening in Russia. But the issue is, can you can you draw from some group conclusions about Putin or vice versa? So I'm trying to focus on the Putin issue just for the moment. There's certainly another interpretation of this whole series of events, which which is which is probably different in the drift than you have, which is as I mentioned when we talked earlier. Uh, according to the CIA, the main influence on Putin is an unknown guy named Ivan Ilyich, who they studied up on, and you can actually find him in Wikipedia somewhere, uh, who was a white, fought with the white Russians against the Reds in that three or four year war that Trotsky eventually prevailed in. And then he left Russia, was in Germany, and actually became a Hegelian while he was in Germany, got heavily into the um, uh, German uh, cl uh, romantic uh, classical philosophy, but uh, so there are a lot of writings by this person. So the point is, uh, the, the belief is that Putin is in the tradition of this white Russian thinker, and he wrote a lot of stuff, and actually heavily influenced by certain Hegelian concepts of uh, world history. So that puts him on the complete opposite side from Stalin in terms of his mental orientation, and then you have all sorts of Things you know that you can I'll make this brief, but you know, for example, the hundredth anniversary of the nineteen seventeen Bolshevik Revolution—they didn't celebrate it. And uh, Putin said, "Well, it's too controversial. There are too many different opinions on it." But I mean, this is immense that they didn't uh, celebrate that. Uh, and uh, this recent interview that he gave to the reporters of Le Figaro in, uh, on his visit in uh, France, and they asked him about Peter the Great, and you could just hear in his answer that. But he's seen himself as a figure in Russian history that is similar to Peter the Great, not to Stalin, and so forth and so on. So I'm saying there's this total, I mean, if we're just focusing on Putin and not on, you know, various things going on in Russia, I think there's uh, quite a different uh, take on Putin that at least the CIA is being on. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, my intention is not to compare Putin and Stalin as people or as uh, philosophers of their philosophies, because they're obviously completely different, minus the, they're sort of, of course, authoritarian tendencies, but the political ideologies are extremely, extremely different. Um, really, what I was just trying to do was compare the rhetoric used um, between the two uh, in their speeches, and how it's, how it's very similar, and how Putin is um, using that kind of language um, not necessarily, he doesn't quote, like, communism is great sort of speeches, but, like, uh, just this, the kind of rhetoric um, was the main point I was trying to make. Um, as for the groups in Russia versus the figure of Putin himself, um, the reason I mentioned Nashi and uh, Yunarmia uh, was just to show that um, the young people are learning in the same ways uh, about this, the history as their parents did, uh, minus some of the some of the communist uh, apologism, um, and that most of these groups are sponsored. For instance, the Army is sponsored largely by the Russian Ministry of Defense, so obviously it's going to be a pro-Putin line. Uh, Nashi was also heavily heavily influenced by uh, the Kremlin as well, so. They have their their roots and their support 
in in government, uh, which I think gives some insight into what Putin himself, what his priorities are, what his interests. Mm -hmm. Just like actually, I came across a really interesting one-hour documentary on a uh, group of French pilots, uh, several hundred apparently, who uh, joined with uh, Soviet forces and flew actually Soviet aircraft. They're known as uh, Normandy Neiman, and apparently they were uh, extremely valued by the Soviets. They had quite a monument, uh, I think 45 or so, who died in the course of shooting down several hundred uh, Nazi German uh, aircraft and defending uh, convoys, <coughs> defending uh, actually flying cover for the, for the um, Soviet bombers as well. Yeah, I'd like to see how they're honored today, if at all. Oh, they're, they're, they had quite a monument built in, I think it's in Moscow, or maybe closer to where they actually were based. It's, a, it's actually on Amazon Prime, I have it right now. <laughs> All right, great. I'll write that one down. Normandy Neiman. Neiman, I think, signifies a particular battle that they were so essential in. with a family, uh, a Russian family, so I was treated very hospitably. I didn't really encounter any antagonism except in uh, the bus station when I was trying to buy bus tickets, um, but I'm not sure if that was just the, uh, ex the, excellent, the excellent customer service or uh, the fact that I was an American. You have to show them your passport so they can register you for, for traveling, but when they when they saw I was an American, they got a little angrier <laughs> at me. <laughs> but other than that, uh, the Russian people have showed me great, great uh, hospitality and were very curious about uh, how Americans really live. Have a lot of conceptions about how American life is based on like American movies, for instance. I got a lot of questions about American high schools. And are they really, do, does everyone always have big drunken parties on the weekends? Like in the movies, and I was like, no. But I was happy. But I was happy to tell them about what they what they wanted to hear and about. It was pretty. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the closest parallel you can draw in among Western leaders with this uh, propagandization of nostalgia? Is there anything that is comparable to Putin and Stalin in the Western world? That's actually a really good question. Um, hmm. I have to think about that. And if there isn't, why not? Well, I can tell you, I can tell you why there isn't in Germany because they they successfully denazified after the war for obvious reasons. Um, but it's to me, it's a it's a major contributing factor that after. Um, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, there was no real process of decommunization, uh, in in the term in terms of like symbolism, symbols, buildings, that sort of thing. Not in terms of like political. Uh, that was a very complicated process, and it was 
such a dramatic change from one system to another that there wasn't really motivation or time to purge, sort of purge the country of any communist symbolism or, or uh, that sort of thing. And I think that is a real sticking point. So I would challenge that just a little bit. Go now, ahead. I mean, because I mean, everybody's seen Goldeneye, right? Is that, is that the one where they're fighting in the graveyard with the busts of Stalin, Lenin, and these great statues? And again, from some uh, uh, anecdotes from people who have had personal experience, I know that during some of the pe early periods of the, the of the 90s and through the mid mid late 90s, there was moves to, um, I guess, uh, destroy some of that that uh, that legacy. No, you're definitely right. That there was uh, early on, especially particularly the very very early days, and especially. Um, outside of Russia itself, but in the former Soviet republics where they were, for instance, the occupied territories were very, very eager to get rid of the symbols of, of their oppressors. So that's why things progressed so quickly there. Um, but it was a little more difficult, I think, for the Russian people to transition mentally out of that, out of that system. And just going to Russia today and seeing um, the hammers and sickles everywhere is just strange. It's almost like being. It's like being in a time warp, almost. <laughs> Would you compare it to, say, removing Confederate flags and Confederate statues from the South? That is an interesting topic that I am not going to delve too deeply into. But um, hmm, it's interesting because hmm. <coughs> You know what? Maybe that does contribute to some of this old the South will rise again stuff coming back up every once in a while. Um, and who knows if that stuff removed. Not saying that I would personally remove it. I actually don't really have an opinion on that subject. At least not here publicly. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Who knows if it would help or if it would be outrageous. Obviously there's a lot of strong feelings about it already, and things haven't even really strongly gotten underway. It does have a really legacy of badness. Yes? Uh, yeah, Rachel, uh, I, I thought Rachel a little bit Russian language and Russian culture here. Uh, what's your opinion about the mortal regiment? I'm from the family. Ha! Huh. Where the people died and fought against Nazis. And here in Washington, D.C., a few years, we had the mortal regiment, Russian speaking. Uh, residents from different, by the way, <laughs> former Soviet republics. And Spasiba Vieda, the Pavieda is a mortal regiment. Mm -hmm. It's from the same, I know, late March and so on. What do you think, like, new generation of Americans? And what's your attitude? Mm -hmm. I mentioned a, a little bit, I think, before you came in, the Mordo Regiment. Um, I think, obviously, it's really important to remember the sacrifices of, of people, and that's why we do it here in D.C. with a lot of monuments and elsewhere. Um, but mostly, I talked about how um, the Immortal Regiment is a way for Russians to stay connected to Russia as a whole, in their own uh, expat communities. So, I don't know. I don't really see anything wrong with 
parades or anything. I just pointed out basically that it's a way for Russians to maintain ties to Russia. Mm -hmm. like the picture of the Soviet soldiers and the American soldiers like shaking hands and hugging each other over uh, the, the Elbe um, and that sort of thing and to see how much things have changed. I think a lot of that was stemmed from the results of the Second World War and what uh, different partners expected to receive from the, the spoils of war. Um, and basically, I don't know if necessity was what brought us together. I mean, our relationship was not outstanding before, but it was not quite as antagonistic. Um, but I think it eventually became more about ideological differences than anything else. The complete disparity between communism and our system and the threat of that. Um, and then I think honestly now it's become such a habit almost um, of reflexive uh, antagonism on both sides um, that it's different. Uh, sorry? What about the fact right after the end of the Second World War, the Soviet Union took over all those countries in Eastern Europe. That was what started the so-called Cold War. Do you know Churchill's Iron Curtain speech at Fulton, Missouri? Indeed I do. And that's, that's, that was the problem. Yes, that was part of the problem. That they were, they were taking over other people's countries um, and, and oppressing those people in those other countries. Yes. And they had larger designs than that that were, were not necessarily realized. Can you confirm whether, I think it's Mussolini said that fascism was really corporatism, the align, alignment of the largest corporate interests with the state, and what the Russian perspective would be today, where, you know, as my understanding is the Russian central bank does not, is not submissive to the whole Western system of central banking, which maybe it's a sore point for the West, and at the same time, in the West, you know, we now let corporations give unlimited amounts to political campaigns. Corporatism is sort of uh, running the show here now. So, might that be a reason for them doing a bit of a deja vu? Possibly, although I'm not sure. Well, they do make a lot of connections uh, between liberalism and fascism 
Um, as I talked about, interesting, and I personally don't really understand it. I have to do some more research on how those two things are connected when they're speaking about them. But I remember hearing that quote that Mussolini specifically said, "Well, fascism is really just corporatism, the alignment of the corporate interests with the state," and it, and that um, would be interesting to validate that. I, mean, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting thought. Okay, any, I'm gonna do like one more probably since it's getting pretty late. Yeah? How confident are you of your sources when you check all these, uh, do your research on all these Russian sources and writing? Because Russians have a tendency to embellish and you know, add whatever it is they want to add. How, do you, how confident are you that this is true or a lot of it is fabricated? Well, I have uh, an entire bibliography, and this entire presentation has footnotes for every quotation, every uh, factual thing I wrote. Um, basically, my sources ranged from uh, scholarly articles in uh, Western and non-Western scholarly publications, like peer-reviewed articles, um, which are checked factually, and I visited, a lot of them are like direct quotations from speeches, and I can read Russian, so I usually read the English and then check with the Russian to make sure the translation is like, all right, um, and usually, usually it checks out, but there are some, obviously there are some words that don't translate quite, it's exactly the same connotations that you have to be careful with. Um, and the sources that I got from Russian news sources like RT or Sputnik, obviously you always have to read them with a grain of salt. But as long as you acknowledge that any kind of source you might use might have a sort of bias in one way or another, it's not too bad. Just power through it and recognize that when you're collecting sources. Do you compare with Russian archives of the, uh, the Eastern Bloc, countries of the Eastern um, in this case, yes, I looked into some like Latvian stuff, but it was also it was translated. Um, but I'm just a grad student, and I don't really have access to like awesome sources in original form. So, did the Russians still remember the Napoleonic invasion of eighteen twelve? Yes, but... In a beautiful book, War and Peace by Tolstoy, I think it's much reading, you have the Zook of the Medium and so on. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that sort of literature is compulsory reading in schools, so it's kind of hard to forget about it, um, like War and Peace and etc. All right, I have one more, I promise one more, and then we're done. <laughs> yeah? So, sorry to get one last in. Oh, that's okay. So, how do you think the new laws about VPN will affect this trend of propaganda uh, in Russia going forward? Hmm, this is interesting. Yeah, I recently heard about this as well. Um, I can't imagine that too much will change because I think people will find ways around it as they do. Um, if they really have a desire to, but at the same time, most Russians get their news from television and not the internet. Um, with the exception of younger people, 
who may have the motivation to actually seek out other sources. Um, with the exception of younger people, I don't think that it will be a huge shift in Right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming out.